they don't understand that his resurrection life gives us the eternal life that we receive today, now, while we walk this earth. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Today we are discussing fundamental belief number 26, death and resurrection. It's perfectly placed here after the doctrine on the second coming and the previous doctrine on the heavenly sanctuary, because those two doctrines in Adventism are shaped by their belief that death is a physical matter, not spiritual, and that humans are just bodies plus breath, that nothing survives death. And this is the doctrine that makes that case. After all, the investigative judgment could not exist in Adventist theology if there were spirits of those who died already in heaven or in punishment. What would Jesus be investigating? This fundamental belief reveals the depth of Adventism's commitment to a purely physical reality that excludes a human spirit except for breath. This belief even leads to the Adventists' underlying assumption that God has a physical form and that there's a physical sanctuary in heaven. This belief also negates the biblical teaching that we're literally born dead, spiritually dead in sin, and that we must be born again. Furthermore, this doctrine alters every other doctrine of Adventism and provides the framework for Adventism's worldview. They try to say that this doctrine is kinder and more hopeful than the biblical doctrine of death. They claim it protects people against deception and spiritualism and that it's so much more hopeful to believe that your loved ones are just lying in the grave, disintegrating to dust, waiting in nothingness for the second coming. The fact is that this doctrine makes Adventists even more vulnerable to deceiving spirits and manifestations that true Christians don't have. But before we go further into this discussion, we want to remind you that your emails are so welcome. We love hearing your stories and your questions, and you can email us at formeradventist at gmail.com, and you can go to proclamationmagazine.com and find our online magazines and articles, as well as links to our FAF YouTube channel and to this podcast. You can donate using the Donate tab there, and please leave a review wherever you listen to us And follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And now, I have my usual question, Nikki. Okay. As an Adventist, did you find the doctrine of soul sleep to be comforting, as Adventism told you it should be? Not in any way whatsoever at all. How so? (laughs) I just didn't. (laughs) How so? Well, I didn't have to think about it a whole lot until I was a teenager and I lost a school friend. Then later, my grandmother passed away. Going to their funerals, to their services, and thinking about them, just being in that box in the ground was dark. Yeah. It was not comforting. I remember after my grandmother passed away, I'd had a dream that I had seen her. I knew she Uh was gone and I saw her and there were no words exchanged. She just had a huge smile on her face and she looked so happy. And I woke up the next day. And I thought, Christians are so lucky. They're so lucky that they can think of their loved ones being happy somewhere. I envied their, quote, ignorance 
mm-hmm. on the matter mm-hmm. and the hope that they said they had when people passed because we knew what was really going on. We knew that they ceased to exist, but one day maybe they would be resurrected and we would live together in heaven. And so I was just really envious of Christians and kind of horrified about the idea of decaying in a box. Oh, yeah. What about you? Same. I remember I was an adult and I always believed, of course, that humans were just bodies plus breath. I remember the equation on the blackboard when I was in junior high in Bible class when the teacher wrote, body plus breath equals living soul. And breath just meant air. Mm -hmm. And that's how they functioned. That's what I believed. And I can remember thinking, oh my goodness, I think it would be so nice to think of my grandmother really being in heaven with the Lord The thought of her decaying in a box and being nowhere except just a memory of her in God's mind, waiting for some future resurrection, and who knew when that would happen, and who knew, you know, in what condition she would come out, saved, unsaved, who knew? I really, like you, felt envious of those who believed their loved ones were with the Lord somewhere. Adventism had taught me that it was so comforting to believe that our loved ones were just dead, sleeping, they called it, but that they weren't up there watching a sin. I remember thinking, well, they don't have to be watching a sin to be in heaven with the Lord. To me, that seemed a bit disjunct and a little illogical. You can't just decide that because you think your loved one is with the Lord, they're watching you sin. That was kind of a non sequitur. So, I was envious, and I did not find the doctrine of soul sleep comforting. I found it really despairing in a way. And I was terrified of dying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they could say all they wanted that, oh, you'll just close your eyes, you'll stop breathing, and the next thing you know, there'll be Jesus coming in the clouds. And I'd think, yeah, but if somebody before me dies and I miss them, it won't be comforting to think of them waiting in the ground in a non-existent state. Furthermore, the thought of me lying in the ground, just rotting away, waiting for something that might or might not happen anytime soon, was terrifying. Just dark. We're talking about what it was like for us. I also noticed, once I became a Christian, I had the experience of watching both an Adventist person die and a Christian die. And seeing how people die Mm -hmm. in Adventism versus in the body of Christ was shocking to me. I had a relative who was dying and had some time knowing that they were dying, and they were in agony considering all of their sins, struggling. Mm. Was I good enough? I I didn't do well enough. And I remember one of my relatives went in to speak with this person, and they came out and they reported to the room, you know, what was going on and, and what was being said. And And he said, I told him, you were a good man. You went to church. You served. You did this. You did that. Of course you can be sure. And I just sat there because at this point I was a believer, but Mm -hmm. I had no voice in this particular environment. And I just felt crushed that this is what he was hoping would give this man hope as he prepared to die. It would not give me hope. No, no. Taking account of what you've done doesn't give you hope. And so this person is facing going in the ground and waiting for the Lord to come back and wondering what happens when he does. And you die not knowing. You die not knowing. And then you have the believers who die surrounded by people who sing worship hymns to them and they're peaceful and they're going home and you just see that difference. It's incredible. And I know as an Adventist, I would have thought, 
It's a mental state. They're convincing themselves of this and choosing to live in this mental state where they're denying the reality of lying in the ground. And yet now that I am a Christian and born again, and I know I'm saved, I know they're telling the truth when they say that they're going to be with the Lord. The Bible says that. Mm -hmm. There's no mystery here. It's very clear what happens, and we can trust the words of the Scriptures, and we can trust what God has told us, and we can rejoice that believing loved ones are with the Lord. It really actually is good news. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) It's surprising. So, Nikki, could you read this doctrinal statement, please? So this is fundamental belief number 26, death and resurrection. The wages of sin is death, but God, who alone is immortal, will grant eternal life to his redeemed. Until that day, death is an unconscious state for all people. When Christ, who is our life, appears, the resurrected righteous and the living righteous will be glorified and caught up to meet their Lord. The second resurrection, a resurrection of the unrighteous, will take place a thousand years later. And then comes a long list of texts, which does not include any of the primary passages from the New Testament about death, which I think is interesting. And we'll say more about that as we go on, because it becomes even more clear. So, Nikki, what did you think about this chapter's opening story, the story of Samuel and Saul and the witch of Endor? It's almost chilling what they're willing to do with the Word of God, the way that they're willing to put themselves over it, to explain it, to... Uh, misrepresent it so fully. And by the time you get to this chapter and you get to this story and you read through, you realize they're not even trying to do this well. I know. That hit me in this one too. This isn't even a, well, maybe they have a point. No, this is blatant misuse of scripture, blatant, flagrant redefinitions of passages and omitting others. And infallible interpretation. If a person were to go and read the story of Saul and Samuel and the witch of Endor, they would go to First Samuel chapter 28 and mm-hmm. they would read it. And they would not be led to conclude with such confidence that this was a demon. That doesn't come from reading the chapter. That comes from protecting a worldview because it's well just said. not there in the text whatsoever. It's a wrong hermeneutic. In fact, I'd like to read a little bit about the passage from Scripture because I remember being shocked by this after I became a Christian, and I had just been grappling with the whole thing of death and the implications of eternal life, knowing that we could be with the Lord. And I came to this, and I automatically assumed that Samuel was a demon, and Saul saw a demon, and the witch of Endor called up a demon. And when I read the words, it didn't say that. It says here in 1 Samuel 28 that Saul had gone and found a witch. Now, he had previously made a law, a decree, that all witches and necromancers were to be killed or somehow done away with because he made it illegal in Israel for people to dabble in the occult. That was God's will. That was God's instruction. But now he was afraid of the Philistines and wasn't at all sure he could win this battle with them. And he had forsaken the Lord and he knew the Lord had already forsaken him. He asked his people to help him find a witch and he found this witch at Endor. And it says in verse 8, Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, he and two men with him, 
And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul vowed to her, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. But what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. And then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed, etc. And then in verse 16, Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. And then Samuel goes on, tell Saul, moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Well, you remember what happened. Saul was devastated. He fell to the ground. Well, you know the rest of the story. Saul and his sons were fighting the Philistines the next day. And this is how the book of 1 Samuel ends, by the way, with this tragic story of Saul being wounded in battle but not killed. And he was desperate, and he asked his armor bearer to kill him, but he wouldn't do it. And Saul, unwilling to be killed by the Philistines, fell on his own sword and killed himself. And his sons also died in battle that day. And just as Samuel had said, they were in the same place, the place of the dead. Now, of course, how does the book explain the story? They leave it hanging with a question. They don't deal with it until they they lay out all of their beliefs about the dead. They say, the prediction came true, but was it really Samuel's spirit that made the prediction? How could a medium condemned by God have power over the spirit of Samuel, God's prophet? And where did Samuel come from? Why did his spirit arise out of the earth? What had death done to Samuel? If it wasn't Samuel's spirit that spoke to Saul, what was it? Let us see what the Bible teaches on the subject of death, communication with the dead, and the resurrection. And then they go on to teach doctrines of demons. And it makes me pretty upset because when you read the passage in Scripture, it doesn't say the Lord caused a demon to come out and impersonate Samuel. It doesn't say anything like that. The story in the Bible clearly identifies Samuel, Saul, and the witch. And the interesting thing is, we can't think of this as automatically it must have been a demon, because the witch was surprised. Mm -hmm. She was startled and afraid when she saw Samuel. And seeing Samuel, she realized who Saul was. Everything about this story was a revelation of reality, not a deception. 
Samuel came up. Samuel said, why have you bothered me? But then he predicted the truth. He foretold the future, which was what Samuel did when he was alive. Mm-hmm. He foretold the future, and he accurately foretold it. The book goes to great lengths to mock the way the story is told by saying, well, if he really was saying the truth when he said, you'll be with me, how could Saul, who had been so disobedient, be supposedly in heaven with Samuel? Well, that's not stated in the story, and that's not what we can even infer Samuel meant. There was a place of the dead. The Old Testament was never clear about believers being with the Lord. That was revealed after Jesus' resurrection, where it says in 2 Timothy 1.10 that the gospel brought life and immortality to light. These things weren't fully understood in the Old Testament, and there was a place where the dead would go. And apparently, those who were believers were in a different part of the place of the dead than those who weren't believers. That's implied when we read things like all of the fathers who were gathered to their fathers when they died. And then Jesus in his parable, which we'll talk about later about Lazarus, he said that Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham. So, there were clearly places where believers were after they died. But Adventism cannot deal with the actual words. They have to explain it away and ask leading straw man argument questions to get you to conclude something that the Bible itself does not conclude. As you said, the book leaves it hanging, and it comes back to it at the end of the chapter with its conclusions. But the fact is, they start with this story, which it was one of the biggest surprises to me when I left Adventism and started looking at Scripture directly and realized that Samuel appears to really have been Samuel. And we cannot say that the witch was responsible for conjuring up Samuel because she was surprised. God allowed Samuel to speak to Saul. And we'll talk more about that and why we believe that is actually what the Bible means when it says it. As we go on. This betrays the fact that they don't believe Scripture is inerrant. The Bible means what it says. You read it in its context, but if it doesn't tell you that it's a demon, you don't get to decide it's a demon because it doesn't fit with your unique doctrine on death and the nature of man. So, they go on to talk about immortality and death. And one of the things that struck me in this chapter is they used more straw mans than they usually do. Yeah, they do. They said the scriptures nowhere describe immortality as a quality or state that a man or woman or his or her soul or spirit possesses inherently. I want to say, okay, who's saying that? Who is saying that humans by nature are immortal? I know no one who says that, unless they're not Christian, unless they're not Bible-believing. But they imply that Christians believe that people are immortal. But the Bible doesn't say that, and Christians don't believe that. Believers are given immortality. But no, it doesn't say that we innately have immortality. This is a straw man argument. Yeah, they like to set up their arguments by knocking down biblical doctrines. These are not true. These don't make sense. Well, air quote, biblical doctrines. Because if they can get the reader to believe that they're more intelligent, then they have their ear. And this is part of how they lead them down that garden path. That's a really good point. And it reminds me, while we were talking about this chapter with Richard before we recorded, he pointed out that Satan's 
first deception to Eve when he said, did God really say? He actually tempted her with special knowledge. Mm -hmm. His great temptation, which was not to trust the words of God, but he tempted her with the idea that she would have more, better, fuller knowledge, unknown Gnostic knowledge. And that's what Adventism is doing in this chapter. Yeah. When they talk about the wages of sin being death, they bring up that conversation between Adam and Eve and the snake. And they say that the snake said, well, did God really say that you would die? And they say it's from this argument that Christianity has bought this lie that we believe that people don't actually die. We believe people are by nature immortal. That's a misrepresentation of Christianity. We do not believe that. And as a matter of fact, we believe God's words when he said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Adventists don't believe that. They don't believe it. That's one of the things that came up a lot in this chapter. They would accuse Christians of doing exactly what they do. Yes. All throughout. And this was one of those places. They take these words of Satan and they carry them like a torch. They didn't die. They didn't die the day they ate the apple. Because everything's physical. And there's the bottom line. This doctrine has to support their belief that there is no spiritual reality in a man or a woman, that they're only physical and that their spirit is only breath, which, by the way, is also physical. That's what this doctrine supports. It's a false worldview. And this is the doctrine that is the framework for every other doctrine. This is what makes it such a dangerous belief system. Its view of reality is wrong, and they assume that the reader will have bought into their view and can be sort of bludgeoned into believing it because of the mocking tone of the questions they ask. It plays well to the idea that we all had that greater minds than mine have this figured out. Greater minds than mine have understood this better than me. Right. Why should I try? One of the ideas this chapter tries to establish right from the beginning is the idea of what they call conditional immortality. Now, like you were just saying, Nikki, they go to great lengths to sort of intimidate people into accepting the idea that everyone out there believes humans are immortal, except for them with their special knowledge. And now they help build that argument by trying to make the case that God gave Adam and Eve free will. And they say, They could obey or disobey, and their continued existence depended upon continual obedience through God's power. So their possession of the gift of immortality was conditional. So they've set up the argument that Adam and Eve were told they would live as long as they obeyed, that when they disobeyed, they would die. Now, what was it that God actually had said? He had said it to Adam back in Genesis 2, before he created Eve. And it says that he gave Adam every tree in the garden to eat except one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did he tell Adam about that? On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was God's statement. How did we understand that statement as Adventists? Oh, well, they were going to become mortal. They would begin to die. It would be a Long process because God would be merciful and he'd sacrifice an animal, but they would ultimately return to the dust. This book goes on to say it was only God's mercy that kept Adam and Eve from dying immediately. The Son of God had offered to give his life so that they might have another opportunity, a second chance. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The fact is, if they didn't die that day, 
God lied. Mm -hmm. The fact that they ate that fruit and that they did die that day is the ground for everything we understand about human nature that Paul makes very, very clear in Ephesians 2, Romans 3. They did die. God said they would. His word cannot be broken. Now, we might say it was his mercy that didn't just wipe them off the planet, but that doesn't mean they didn't die. What happened to them? Their spirits died. And then every child that's been born since then has been born in the likeness of Adam. We have all been born spiritually dead. And this is why Jesus says that we need to be born again. Yes. He said flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Yes. And Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, explains that we're all born dead in sin by nature, children of wrath. I mean, what on earth does that mean? It means children of wrath, God's wrath. They did die that day, and we know they died that day because they hid from God. They were ashamed. They tried to cover themselves. They blamed one another. They blamed the snake. They didn't take responsibility for their own disobedience. They died spiritually. And that's why God sent them out of the garden. And that's why God cursed the ground. They died. But this book, from the beginning of this chapter, establishes the fact that Adam and Eve did not die. Mm -hmm. And on that twisting of scripture, they build their entire doctrine which they call the, to their members the doctrine of soul sleep. But which, interestingly, Nikki, they don't even mention that name in this chapter. Why do you think? I think because it's not actually soul sleep. Christians wouldn't necessarily disagree with the idea of soul sleep. Adventists, and I might add Jehovah's Witnesses, believe the doctrine of, quote, soul sleep. But the real nature of that doctrine is those people who die don't exist. Mm -hmm. God has a memory of them in His head, their bodies die in the ground, and only at the resurrection will God download the memory of those people into a new body, and they'll think it's themselves coming back to life because their memories are all there from God's memory. It's in conflict with their health message. Everything is psychological. Everything's in the mind. It's why you have to eat healthy. That's where we communicate with God. And we have a lot of doctors and a lot of scientists in Adventism. They uh -huh. know that the human body decays. Yes. They understand. They even say in this chapter that they return to dust. What exactly do they mean by soul sleep? What's exactly. sleeping? What is it? It doesn't work with no. their other teachings. No, it's a euphemism. It's a euphemism to sound acceptable, to not sound despairing, and to, frankly, to be deceptive to the Christian community. They actually don't believe in soul sleep. They actually believe that humans are souls and that when they cease to breathe, they die and their souls, whatever that is, are dead. They believe that people don't exist after they die. And the thing that's interesting, they didn't say it quite in the way we're going to describe it, but they did say this. When they talk about the nature of death, death is asleep. Death is not complete annihilation. It is only a state of temporary unconsciousness. While the person awaits the resurrection, the Bible repeatedly calls this intermediate state asleep. And they also say that Solomon confirmed this idea. And they quote Solomon from Ecclesiastes 3, 
saying, the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath, spirit, margin, ruha. Humans have no advantage over animals. And then it says, according to Solomon, at death there is no difference between the spirits of man and beast. Well, this is a faulty use of scripture. Number one, Solomon's passages in Ecclesiastes are not defining doctrinal truth. Ecclesiastes is poetic literature describing the way a person who does not believe in God views life. He is describing the helpless despair of an unbeliever. And for them to use Solomon's passage to make the case that a human is just like an animal is a faulty use of Scripture, because it's very clear from Genesis that God made man in God's image, not the animals. The lie here is that within Adventism, among the membership, they're told humans have no advantage over animals in death. They're told humans die like animals. They cease to exist. But this book is being very cautious about overtly stating that because they know it would sound horrifying to a Christian, and they know the Bible could actually show that that was wrong. When I read that part of the book to Carl, he told me that getting your doctrine from Ecclesiastes is a lot like getting your doctrine on God from Job's friends. (laughs) (laughs) Go, Carl. He's right. One of the things that was so upsetting to me in that section that you just read from, like I said, they have given up even trying. Listen to what they say. In the Bible, neither the Hebrew nor the Greek term for spirit, ruach and pneuma respectively, refers to an intelligent entity capable of a conscious existence apart from the body. Rather, these terms refer to the breath, the spark of life essential to individual existence. Now, wait a minute. Ruach and Numa never refers to, in all of the Bible, never refers to an intelligent entity capable of a conscious existence apart from the body. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) We have God referring to himself as both Numa and Ruach. Yes. Both in the Old and in the New Testament. In John 3, 6, Jesus... God the Son says, Spirit gives birth to Spirit. That's Numa. Yeah. That's the Holy Spirit giving birth to the human spirit. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. You cannot say that this is not an intelligent entity. Exactly. Furthermore, He doesn't have a body. The Holy Spirit doesn't have a body. No. And so now you have an intelligent entity that exists apart from a body. That's right. The exact opposite of what they say the Bible claims. Right. Hebrews 12, 3, when the writer is talking about coming to Mount Zion, believers come to Mount Zion, he says that they come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Right. That is not the breath of the righteous. No. That is the spirits of the righteous made perfect. They're perfected by the righteousness of Christ, of God in Christ. Right. These are the saints. These are humans who've been redeemed. Luke twenty four thirty nine. Jesus, God, says, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He's making clear that a spirit, a unit, a single spirit does not have flesh and bones. That's right. It's not physical. And they're saying spirits can't exist apart from flesh and bones. Exactly. That they have to be connected. And then in the Old Testament, 
in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, when God is talking about this new covenant he's going to make with Israel, which we're grafted into. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That's Ruach. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit, Ruach, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the text that I believe led Jesus to ask Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and Mm -hmm. you don't know this? You cannot blatantly say that scripture never refers to spirit as being intelligent or existing apart from a body. No, it's such a lie. In fact, Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, 424, God is spirit. Numa. Omniscient, almighty, eternal, omnipotent God is not physical. He is spirit. And then Jesus went on to say, and true worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. That means true worshipers we who believe, have spirits that can worship God. And as you pointed out, those spirits are what are born dead and must be born again of the spirit. We have spirits. Adam and Eve's spirits died the day they ate that fruit. That is our legacy in Adam. We're born spiritually dead, Romans 3, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. But we can be made alive through hearing the gospel of our salvation and As Ezekiel prophesied, we are sealed with God's Holy Spirit on top of being given new life in our own spirits. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When we believe, Mm -hmm. we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Spirits are not breath. They're not physical manifestations of some ephemeral idea. They're not non-existent. They're not unintelligent. Spirits are filled with intelligence, and our spirits are our identity in Christ. It's how we worship in spirit and in truth. So, Jesus tells us that spirit gives birth to spirit. And then Peter tells us that it's by the resurrection power of Christ that we're born again. And not that we choose to be born again. God causes us to be born again through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. That is where we receive the life of God in us. This is when we're born again. Yeah. And that's in our spirits. That's not the resurrection. This chapter claims that nobody receives immortality until the resurrection. Well, there is one thing I want to point out. When Adam and Eve sinned, they died spiritually, but their bodies continued to live for several hundred years. When we are born again, our spirits come to life. We pass from death to life at that moment, as Jesus said, John 5, 24. We are born again. We are sealed. We are adopted. We pass from death to life. We're transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son by God Himself, Colossians 1, 13. But our bodies are still mortal. Mm-hmm. Our bodies will die. Just as Adam and Eve sinned, and died spiritually before they died physically. So when we are born again, our spirits come to life ahead of our bodies being glorified. And we know that this actually will work because Jesus, who never had to be born again, but was always spiritually alive, was yet born in a mortal body. He had spiritual life 
but a mortal body. His mortal body died, was buried, and came to life on the third day. God put his spirit back together with his new body, not just downloading memories of Jesus. It was Jesus himself whose spirit went to the Father, as he told the thief on the cross it would. Mm -hmm. Into your hands I commit my spirit and to the thief. Today I will be with you in paradise. And on the resurrection day, God reunited body and spirit. And that's what will happen to us. Our spirits, which have been born again, which will go to the Father when we die, which will be in Jesus when we die, will be put together with our glorified bodies and we will be eternal, both body and spirit. Because to be human is to be body plus spirit. That's what was so remarkable about the incarnation. Our creator, God who is spirit, God the Son, took up body so he could identify with us and so he could pay for our sin. And now he's going to have body and spirit forever. We are body and spirit forever. And he is giving us his resurrection life, which will make us eternal with him. We're so convicted of this because we believe that scripture is inerrant. And we believe that the tenses matter. They mattered to Jesus And that's why they matter to us. So when we look at this and we see them playing with this and putting themselves over it, it kind of makes us crazy. They say the moment of the bestowal of the gift of immortality is described by Paul. And then they go on to quote, of course, from 1 Thessalonians, when Jesus comes and the dead in Christ rise first. Those who are alive are caught up together with them. And this is the moment that they say we receive immortality. They say this makes very clear that God does not bestow immortality upon the believer at death, but at the resurrection. So, they say it comes at the resurrection, and then they throw in a straw man argument, assuming that Christians say it comes upon death. No, we say what the Bible says. We say, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, you were marked in yourself with the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who seals us, who causes us to be born again by the resurrection power of Christ. Right. We believe that because we believe the tenses of Scripture. John tells us that we have passed out of death into life. He tells us that the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. These are the words of Jesus and does not come into judgment but mm-hmm. has passed out of death into life. In 1 John 5, verse 11, this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Listen to the tenses. John three thirty six. whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. 1 Timothy six twelve. Paul tells Peter to fight the good fight of faith, to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The gift of eternal life is not a gift card. No. To be redeemed later. No. Scripture makes very clear that it happens at the moment of belief. And in fact, Jesus had a conversation both with Martha and the thief on the cross, like you mentioned, where he made very clear that he is the resurrection. That's right. Both of them said to him that their hope was in the final resurrection. She said, I know I'll see my brother when he's resurrected on the last day. And the thief said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Both of them, that's where their hope was. And Jesus redirected both of them. And he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he said, everyone who lives and believes in me, 
will never die. Right. And he told the thief, like you said, today you will be with me in paradise. And it's worth mentioning that because that's in their footnote of difficult texts. That text was not mispunctuated, as Adventists try to tell us. The translators didn't just arbitrarily put a comma in the wrong place so that it would say the thief would be with Jesus that day. That text means in Greek what it says in the translations. Verily, I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. The construction of the language, the way it is used, the way the prefix, the way the introduction, truly, truly, I say to you, verily, I say unto you, the way that is used, Jesus used it many times in his speaking throughout the Gospels. At no time did that phrase ever mean, I say to you today. This is clear in the Greek. The way Adventists explain it is just a lie. And that's a hermeneutical principle. What is the pattern of Scripture? Right. Jesus often said, truly, truly, I say to you. And again, the pattern with Martha. She was looking for a future hope. He said, I am that hope right now. We need to talk about Adventism's argument about death being asleep. Yes, Jesus called it asleep. He definitely referred to Jairus' daughter as merely sleeping. He even said that about Lazarus after he had died. Adventists take that argument and say, see, see, he's just saying they will come to life again. That's all he meant by calling it asleep. And then they come up with a list of seven things that in their mind, in this book, support the idea of Jesus calling death asleep, referring to that they will come to life later. Here are their seven arguments. Those who sleep are unconscious, and they use the text, the dead know nothing, Ecclesiastes 9.5. Number two, in sleep, conscious thinking ceases, text, his breath goes forth, in that very day his thoughts perish, Psalm 146.4. Three, sleep brings an end to all the day's activities. Text, there's no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going, Ecclesiastes 9.10. Four, sleep disassociates us from those who are awake and from their activities, and their text is Ecclesiastes 9.6. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Five, normal sleep renders the emotions inactive, text Ecclesiastes 9.6. Their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Six, in sleep, people do not praise God. Text, the dead do not praise the Lord, Psalm 115, 17. And seven, sleep presupposes an awakening. Text, the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, John 5, 28 and 29. Well, in each of these cases, they have constructed straw man arguments. Jesus referred to death as a sleep, not to justify the idea that a person goes into the ground and stays there until the resurrection. Jesus said these people were asleep because they were not gone. When you're asleep, you don't cease to exist, nor does your mind cease working. Now, you may not be fully aware of the world around you while you're asleep, but your mind is working, you are dreaming, you are processing. And just to use an example that Richard used, when you first have a baby, that every cry of that baby, even if you're asleep, you hear in your sleep. Mm -hmm. You get up, you deal with that child. When you're asleep, you're not gone. You're still reacting to the world, to your life. And how dare they say, when people are asleep, they don't praise the Lord. 
I often dream with music. I don't know how many people do, but probably because music's a big part of my life. There are dreams and experiences in sleep that can definitely be worshipful. If one knows the Lord, there's no reason one's spirit will not praise the Lord in one's sleep. So their arguments are just straw man, and the texts they use, primarily from Ecclesiastes, are, again, using Solomon's rather despairing descriptions of a life without God to try to justify a biblical doctrine which Jesus called sleep, not meaning the person ceases to exist, but meaning this person still exists. We're just going to put the pieces together again. Body and spirit are coming back together. And you had a reaction to their last use of their text here. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. John 5, 28 and 29. They just conveniently left out what came right before that. What was that? John 5, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you. Look, there it is. Uh (laughs) Truly, truly, I say to you, a time is coming and even now has arrived when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, Jesus is not speaking here of the body. This is the text that immediately precedes the one that does speak of the tombs. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth. In the text you just read, Nikki, Jesus is saying the spiritually dead, and he said at the time he said it, that was even present when he was there. The time is coming and now is when the dead, the spiritually dead, will hear his voice and live. Mm -hmm. And he makes a difference between that declaration and the one in the book. A time is coming in which all those who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. He does not say a time is coming and now is when he speaks of the graves. Right. The tenses again, Mm -hmm. that's future. Mm -hmm. From the time Jesus spoke, the resurrection is future, but it was present from the day he spoke and onward that the spiritually dead would come to life when they listened to his voice. And that verse in 25, where it says that the time has even now arrived when people will hear his voice and live, that follows 24. Yes. I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me, hears and believes, has eternal life, has passed out of death into life. That's at the moment you hear and believe. So when you have that in mind, and then you go and you look up their Psalm 115 text, yes, they quote, Verse 17, the dead do not praise the Lord. But let's just read on. (laughs) They say, nor do any who go down into silence. But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. There is talk of death and life in scripture that isn't just physical. Right. The spiritually dead, they don't praise the Lord, even when they're up on two feet walking this earth. But those who are alive praise the Lord from this time until forevermore. Exactly. That doesn't end. It never stops. And I just want to say in the very next chapter in Psalm 116 verse 15, it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. It's precious to him when we come home. That's right. And that to me really explains how it was that Moses and Elijah could come to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and speak to him about the events that would soon take place. They were having a conversation about his road to Calvary. They knew. They were encouraging him. Now, it's true, Elijah was translated in a flaming chariot without seeing death, but he had been in heaven with the Lord 
Elijah knew what we have not seen. He knew the reality of the spirits in heaven, and he was there with Moses, who did die. And unlike Adventism's teaching, and by the way, Jehovah's Witnesses, Moses was not resurrected. They actually have one footnote for this chapter, number seven, which takes a full two pages in which they deal with the difficult texts in the Bible (laughs) that seem to discredit their idea of death. And the story of Moses is one of those difficult texts, Mm -hmm. and it comes from Jude 9. Now, it's interesting that they try to explain that Jesus came and resurrected Moses and had a little battle with Satan over the body of Moses. But it says Jesus clearly resurrected Moses because he appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. No, that text does not say Moses was resurrected. Number two, it does not say Jesus resurrected him. And number three, that text says that Michael the archangel contended with the devil. And Adventists will say Michael the archangel is Jesus. Now, it's very interesting to me that in this book, they don't make that definition. Mm -hmm. They don't even mention that the text says Michael the archangel. They just assume that nobody will look it up, and they say Jude 9 says that Jesus resurrected him. The assumption there is that Jesus is Michael, because the text says Michael. Mm -hmm. But in Jude 9, Michael is clearly not Jesus, because In that text, it says, he dared not bring a scathing rebuke against the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Jesus did rebuke Satan. Jesus disarmed Satan at the cross. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is Satan's, Lucifer's creator. There is no mistake Michael the archangel is not Jesus, but they try to explain that by saying Jesus resurrected Moses. He was not resurrected. He died and he was still on that mountain. He was. And you know, I know we can't know exactly what form Elijah was in, but we do know that Jesus is the firstborn, the first fruits. He's the first one to have a glorified body. And if we go outside of the story of Moses and Elijah, we have Paul telling us that whether we're with the Lord or here, we make it our aim to please him. Well, how do you make it your aim to please God if your thoughts have ceased? Exactly. Now, Nikki, that's very interesting because that chapter and verse that you just brought up about pleasing the Lord when we're dead, whether we're in the body or away, that is in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 9. And 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 9 is perhaps the most compelling of all the texts in the Bible that make it really, really clear that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And you know something? This entire chapter never mentions that passage. Furthermore, in their two pages of difficult texts, they don't mention it. That outraged me. This text, this passage, which makes it clear that we leave our mortal tents when we die, that we don't want to be unclothed but clothed, and that we're waiting for our immortal bodies, that we are absent from the body and present with the Lord, and that whether we are at home in the body or absent from it, we make it our aim to please Him, which means whether we're embodied or whether we're with the Lord, we're pleasing Him. Mm -hmm. That passage is not dealt with in this chapter, because how would they explain it? So, if they ignore it, maybe nobody will notice. 
Yeah, it doesn't make sense that they go to those Old Testament texts when Scripture tells us in the New Testament that Jesus brought life and immortality to light. He broke the grave. They don't go to the didactic teachings. They don't go to the passages where our apostles are telling us what all of this actually means, how it's going to play out, and what it looks like. We have John the Revelator seeing saints in heaven, praising God, seeing saints under the altar, asking him, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? Which means that he hasn't dealt with sin on earth, and yet there are spirits who are speaking to the Lord. Now, they might say, oh, but that was a vision. Right. But at the same time, they use that same vision to say that the temple is literal in heaven. Uh-huh. Yes. So, their hermeneutic is completely inconsistent. All of the chapter was frustrating, but if there's one fingerprint, one demonic fingerprint that I have to pick out of the whole chapter, it's this one. They say, when Christ died... He went into the grave, but at the resurrection, his soul left the grave. So after making the case that the soul is nothing more than body plus breath, they make the point that God, the son, was dead in that tomb for three days and that his soul was right there with him. Mm -hmm. He ceased to exist. That's right. And in other parts of their literature, they say he was keeping the Sabbath, and they eliminate this business of him being in paradise with the thief. They don't have God. They don't. In fact, Ellen White said that the divinity of Jesus, as if it were some just ephemeral quality, that his divinity hovered in the tomb with his dead and lifeless body. They have a Jesus who ceased to exist that is, as you said, not God. I think one of the things that we really have to deal with here before we end this chapter is there are multiple pages on how their doctrine eliminates the possibility of believing in spiritualism. They say that believing that people don't exist in eternity with the Lord when they're dead will keep people from being deceived by evil spirits. And of course, they have to explain the story of Saul and Samuel to make that case, that that was just a demon. But it's interesting. They introduce this subject with a, with a straw man argument. They say this, the erroneous doctrine of natural immortality has led to the belief in consciousness and death. As we have seen, these positions directly contradict the biblical teaching on the subject. They were incorporated, get this, they were incorporated into the Christian faith from pagan philosophy, particularly that of Plato, during the time of the great apostasy, see chapter 13 of this book, aka the Pope. Catholics have introduced this. These beliefs became the prevailing view within Christianity and continue to be dominant today. Belief that the dead are conscious has prepared many Christians to accept spiritualism. If the dead are alive and in the presence of God, why could they not return to earth as ministering spirits? And if they can, why not try to communicate with them and receive their counsel and instruction to avoid misfortune or to receive comfort in sorrow? Nikki, do you know any Christian who believes in spiritism? No. This is such an affront to Christianity, saying that Christians have absorbed a pagan doctrine from Plato and the Pope, and that now Christians, many Christians, are vulnerable to spiritism. That is a lie. Christians know that the dead do not communicate with the living. They are in Christ, 
we are in Christ, but the dead and the living do not communicate. And Christians read their Bible. They know that God commanded his people to stay away from that nonsense. And this is one of those places, by the way, where they tell on themselves. Uh They say, like you just read, that, you know, why not look to them for counsel and instruction and to avoid misfortune and to receive comfort? That's exactly what Ellen White did with her husband. Yes. After he died, she had a dream. They were riding along in a carriage and he appeared beside her and she was so excited to see him. She thought God had had mercy on her and that he had returned her husband. Turned out that wasn't the case, but he began to give her advice. He told her about the regret he had that he had stayed so long in Battle Creek and that he was supposed to have taken his family to California to do the work, but people were really putting pressure on him to stay there. And he was telling her, he knows that she's not going to make the same mistake. Mm. And he urged her to write down the things that he was saying and to share them. And then she responds by pleading with him, don't leave me, stay with me and we'll do this work together. He told her to make it her first business to deal with this. And she said, I awoke, but this dream seemed so real. Now you can see and understand why I feel no duty to go to Battle Creek for the purpose of shouldering the responsibilities in general conference. I have no duty to stand in general conference. The Lord forbids it. That's enough. So she had this dream. And then she says the Lord forbids for her to go and do the work they asked her to do in the general conference. This is an authoritative dream. It's her husband who has died. It brought her comfort. She asked him not to leave her. And he gave her instruction. Exactly what this says. Yes. Christians do. Yes. And they do it themselves. They They are accusing us. They are accusing Christians of doing what they do and mocking it. And yet this woman attributed that dream of her husband coming to her after death. She attributed that to the Lord. That was her excuse. And that is necromancy. That's actually quite scary to attribute something like that to God. They say in this section, at times, these spirits, these visiting demonic spirits, predict future events, which when proven to be accurate, give them credibility. Then the dangerous heresies they proclaim take on the veneer of authenticity, even though they contradict the Bible and God's law. Having removed the barriers against evil, Satan has free reign to lead people away from God and to certain destruction. Well, they tell on themselves, as you said. I found it interesting also that in their last section here on the resurrection and its impact, they say this. This is a quote from the Adventist Bible Dictionary. It was the certainty of Christ's resurrection that brought point and power to the preaching of the gospel, Philippians 3, 10, and 11. Peter speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead as producing a lively hope in believers, 1 Peter 1, 3. Now, Nikki, we can't leave this chapter without you talking about that passage from 1 Peter, because this is a favorite of yours, and they've misused it. Yeah, it is. This is that passage that I mentioned earlier, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. And he goes on to say that this living hope is kept in heaven for us, imperishable and guarded by the power of God through faith. They've taken this incredible passage that further 
reveals the new birth and what Jesus was talking about when he spoke to Nicodemus and what he charged his apostles to mm-hmm. with spreading throughout the church. You've taken that and they have shrunk it down to a lively hope. Yes, in a future resurrection that you don't know whether or not you'll come up out of the grave saved or lost. They go on and talk about how clearly it was seeing the resurrected Christ that changed all these men, these apostles, and made it so that they could go out into the world. It was it was a charge. It was invigorating. It yeah. was exciting. And this drove them to do the things they did. Christians say this was because they were born again. This was after Pentecost when they yeah. received the Holy Spirit. It wasn't until then, actually, that these people charged into the world with the gospel. Before that, Christ told them, go and wait. I'm yeah. sending you the Holy Spirit. Yes, they weren't allowed to leave Jerusalem. They weren't allowed to speak of what they had seen and heard to the people until he gave them the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just seeing the resurrection that gave them energy. They didn't know what to do with that Mm -hmm. until they had God himself indwelling them. But they have to give an account for that. And that really is the question that secular society has to answer. When they say, he was just a good teacher, the Christians and the evidence says, well, how did that change the whole world? Right. How were these people changed? No, it wasn't just because they were excited. No, no. This was because the power of God has come to men through belief in Jesus. They say in, in speaking of Christ's resurrection, they say the resurrection of the righteous dead to immortality is closely associated with Christ's resurrection because it is the resurrected Christ who eventually will raise up the dead. They don't understand that his resurrection life gives us the eternal life that we receive today, now, while we walk this earth. That's right. Those who believe are born again to this living hope through the resurrection life of Christ himself. And this is why Easter is so wonderful. This is why you play a song in a congregation of Christians that speaks of Christ coming out of the grave and you feel the room change and you hear the joy. It's true. Because we know this is everything. This is the eternal life that we have right now. Not later, not a gift card, not a promise to come, but a promise kept. Yes. And this life that we have when we trust Jesus is eternal and we don't stop knowing we have it. When we die, we are absent from the body and present with the Lord, and there's no break in our intimacy with Him. Jesus said through Paul in Romans 8 that nothing, nothing, not even life or death can separate us from the love of Christ. And that text is a promise. Now, as an Adventist, I would hear that and think, sure, Jesus will remember that we loved him and trusted him, and he will love us even if we die. We won't be separated from his love. But what rationalizing? It says death cannot separate us from his love, and it means that literally. (laughs) We are with him. We know him. We're in him. And death doesn't change that. We don't know what the intermediate stage looks like. But we know it's real because the Bible tells us it's real, and we don't cease to exist. And when the resurrection comes, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, and He will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, and He will bring those who have to life. He will reunite body and spirit, and we will forever be with the Lord. Nothing 
stops us from being with the Lord, not even death. Can I just quickly add something to that Thessalonians text you just read? As an Adventist, when I read that he would bring with him those who had fallen asleep, I thought that meant when he goes back, he would bring them back with him. But I want to encourage people to look up 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. The very last verse in that chapter talks about Christ returning. And it says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He comes with his saints to get all the rest of us. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? And if you don't know that you are alive now, sealed with the Holy Spirit, never to die, because even if your body dies, you will never die. If you don't know that, I just want to encourage you to think about the claims of Jesus. Think about what the New Testament tells us. Think about 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Jesus died for our sins according to Scripture. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. And when you believe that, when you acknowledge that you are a sinner who cannot be good on your own, that you need life, not just goodness, that you need him and you repent He gives you his eternal life and nothing will ever separate you from him. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly emails and view past online articles. And there's a donate tab there too if you'd like to come alongside us with your financial support. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we look at fundamental belief number 27, the millennium and the end of sin. And we'll see you then. 